Elizabeth, mm-hmm. the holidays have just happened. Right. And uh, that has meant that a lot of us went back home. You know, we spent some time with friends and family. And this time of year, for me, is always really reflective. I think more so than any other time of year. And specifically, I've really been wondering about, um, you know, how I used to be or how I used to act. Back in Chicago, I have all these, like, these, this old stuff stored in these giant plastic bins in my parents' attic. You know, there's high school sports stuff, and there's old clothes and posters and books and, drum roll, old journals and notebooks from college, which really freak me out. <laughs> Those are sometimes so much fun to read, like in a really depressing so. sort of way. I think embarrassed probably is a good word. To the, at the very best, they're they're personally incriminating. And at the worst, they're professionally disastrous. <laughs> I think, you know, they're filled with short free verse poems and the thoughts and beliefs of an 18 to 22 year old version of me which I, I am legitimately starting to sweat very much right now just thinking about Wait, this. Wait, what's incriminating? Did you have some plot to overthrow the government? What a weird thing to go to. No, I didn't have that. I just mean like, okay, so uh, how smart is your dumb? What? Yeah, okay, hold on. Wait, hang with me. To me, college in your 20s are all about holding on for dear life in just a whir of stupidity. But at the time, I felt pretty confident in my understanding of life. And those old notebooks of mine, they show that. You know, they're, they, they illustrate this like stubborn, unwavering certainty, which is based on a complete lack of experience in anything. <laughs> and, you know, so far in my 30s, Uh, I've been gifted this series of, let's call them learning opportunities. I still make a lot, a ton of mistakes, but things feel different. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm sober. I'm walking a career path that feels purposeful. I'm maintaining strong relationships. I'm working on bettering myself. I think that maybe I'm not getting any less dumb. I just think that perhaps my stupid is maybe getting a little bit smarter. Do you see what I'm saying? In the spirit of the holiday season that just passed, I shall let that go unchecked. That is the greatest gift you've ever given me. Thank you. So, I mean, I don't mean that I'm just like this big dumb dummy bumbling through life, you know, but I am building off of or completely breaking those silly ideas from the past. You know, for the most part, I think I'm a pretty smart guy. I hope. I mean, at the very least, I know that I don't know a ton. And when I was younger... In my teens and my 20s, I stood on what I thought was like really solid ground. I figured I knew what life was all about and how I was going to, you know, work my way through it. But, I mean, can you imagine plotting your life out with the so-called knowledge and experience that you had when you were 18 years old? I would be married to the worst person ever. I would be still wearing hammer loop jeans and a Letterman jacket and probably <laughs> eating a pizza puff for every meal, dude. Ugh. So I was thinking a lot about this while I was chatting with Kate Williams. She's the CEO of 1% for the Planet. And that's a kick-ass organization that helps companies spend their dough on environmental causes. And when Kate was 18, something remarkable happened. This seed of an idea sprouted in her and grew into the ethical and moral foundation for her entire life. I believe it takes more bravery to be kind than good. How? Do you come up with that for crying out loud? 
And more importantly, what does that mean? I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakano. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them. I have two older brothers, I'm the youngest, and my memories are, you know, of, you know, running around in the yard before dinner kind of stuff, and um, we would go to a cabin on a lake in Maine while I was growing up. That was kind of our summer experience, just a very kind of rustic, you know, you can see the lake through the, you know, between the walls of the cabin kind of place, and, um, you know, just you know, long days of just playing hard and swimming hard and just, you know, being outside together a lot. So, you know, my brothers were definitely sort of posse growing up. But you grew you grew up in Vermont and you would spend summers at the cabin in Maine? or I grew up outside of Boston, actually. So we were kind of right on the edge. I could take a public bus from like a block in front of my house down into Cambridge and Boston. So there's Audubon land and trails in the woods and stuff. So it was a pretty cool place to grow up in that regard. And then Maine was um, where the cabin on the lake was um, outside of Augusta, Maine. Did you get into trouble at all or were you pretty straight-laced as a kid? I was pretty straight-laced as a kid. Um, I mean, I have memories of, I remember I, um, we had these neighbors that we kind of shared a yard with, so we were very close to them. And my the girl my age was named Sarah. And I remember she got some little perfume sample that I really wanted, and so I took it. and. Um, and then I felt horrible and told my mom and, you know, and that, you know, I look back now and it seems like such a, like a minor sin, but I think it's sort of indicative of like, I had a wicked guilty conscience, I think from an early age. But there's a part of me that feels like in some way I came out that way, that I was like oriented toward that. And it could have been being the third child and just mm-hmm. realizing that like my odds for survival increase if I, <laughs> If I do what they tell me to do, um, <laughs> your brothers, you know, yeah, yeah. just you know, my brothers or my parents, because my my we're very close in age too. There's like when I was born, my oldest brother was not yet three, so we were very close in age, and and I do think it's like an accomplishment that I'm still alive <laughs> at this stage because, you know, there were time like we uh, we would go camping as a family. We would go. We you know, my parents didn't just hang out at home. So we would do a lot of stuff. And, you know, fortunately I never like fell off the back of the truck or something because, um, and I, so all that is to say, I feel like in some way without anyone saying, Kate, you have to be good. I maybe, I think I created these be good guidelines on my own. And I actually feel like that's been something that has been consistent for me is, you know, I definitely, you know, was oriented to approval from adults. Um, like from my teachers, from parents. And then as I got older, I think I was, um, you know, I could see that it would be more environmental, that I, like I was in a school that was very academically oriented. And so I think I tuned into, like, if I do well, that's like, that's what gets rewarded. You know, and that was something I felt like, for me, that was like the definition of being good. Kate also looked to her two older brothers for guidance, but that changed. 
when they hit middle school, they um, did what I, you know, probably on the extreme end of what's in the normal range for being rebellious. You know, they, it, you know, they were definitely pushing the limits in a big way. Like what, and, what did um, they do? Well, they did drugs. They got kicked out of school. Uh-huh. They um, used their slingshots to shoot out the windows of the neighbor across the street because it was fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were, wow. you know, so they were definitely you know, testing some of those limits. And I should say also, like, because this is relevant context, although, it, like, I don't consciously think about it, but my mom got ordained as an Episcopal priest when I was in eighth grade. So, and she was, you know, she was not, I, I like, some people would hear that and be like, oh, that's where you became a rule follower. She, I, she was kind of, like, wonderfully reverent and irreverent at the same time, but she was an Episcopal priest, and then my dad was the headmaster of a school. So, you know, I think my brothers, in their thinking about that phase in their lives, have sort of, you know, realized that that combination for them probably prompted some of their um, rebellion. But so for me, like, seeing them change in the very drastic ways that they changed was really hard, because they were my buddies. They were, yeah. you know, my people and then suddenly they became very different just physically and you know they grew their hair and they looked different and they smelled different and they were freaking my parents out and creating more tension in our household and so it's like it was scary for me at that age and um I was not a rambunctious kid I was a pretty focused Uh kid like I um I had I was like I loved notebooks and journals and stuff like that and I had you know I was very into my handwriting and um (laughs) just sort of revealing probably but I loved like having a journal and writing in it every day and writing exactly a page every day and I remember this one time we were kind of all like sitting at the table having dinner and like dinner around the table is a very important part of our family and I remember one of my brothers arrived kind of late and I don't know if he was later than expected but it was sort of like mid-dinner so it was like a disruptive time to arrive and he was really drunk and um and it was like not okay because he had driven and he um was coming into the middle of like a peaceful place where normally he would fit in because that was his place too but he came in and it just felt like he was this other person coming in and I think he felt it too. So it was just like this clash of, you know, what this place meant to all of us, him included, and then him being who he was in this. And so that was just like a really difficult moment. I remember for all of us, that moment sort of stood out as just like a kind of low watermark for sort of a family. And then another one that is a little funnier is my my other brother. Um, he wanted to come and bring one of his girlfriends. And for him, this, this one brother, I mean, girlfriends were often a part of whatever escapades were going on. And um, my parents, which, you know, may not be as much the norm today, my parents were like, well, fine, but you can't sleep together under our roof and they use they use those words under our roof right so my brother was like fine and he arrived and set up a tent like right outside the kitchen window <laughs> yes <laughs> and uh and they why didn't i think of that exactly <laughs> i know so he's like loophole found nice yeah yeah and my parents to their credit they're like well all right i guess that this is the way this is gonna work and everyone we just like coexisted in that way but that was a funnier moment 
Well, I'm assuming too that, you know, like they're coming home, you know, get, getting in trouble. Um, and you see the kind of the dynamic that's happening between them and your parents. And, and to me, what it seems like this kind of pressure to be good, this pressure to please is kind of really exemplified there. So you don't experience that. Am I right? Like, how did that, how did that pressure to please show up in your family dynamic? That, I think you're definitely right. And, you know, I've tried to understand if like I brought some of that inclination in beforehand, but I think absolutely that time period was when I was like, all right, like I got to be good. And my mom has told me, or she passed away last year, but before that she had told me that, um, that at one point I said to her and my dad, like, don't worry, I'll be good. So I completely took that on and they were, you know, apparently they were like, well, you don't have to carry that burden. Like that's not on you. I don't remember this conversation, but again, they weren't they weren't imposing that on me. And in fact, I do remember later my dad um, saying to me, um, you know, Kate, if you want to rebel, you can. Um, he and, said that uh, to just you. Like, he did. Really? He did. I, <laughs> Here's yeah. a pack of smokes. Would you please just go fire these up behind the right. garage or something? Yeah, exactly. He didn't he didn't define for me what what type of rebellion right, I should take, right. but I think I think they realized, <laughs> you know, in the moment like how much my experience of my brother shaped my experience of me in that time period and they didn't want me to have to sort of carry that, which I now look back and I'm like, "Way to go, mom and dad." With her parents' blessing, Kate started to rebel big time. She laundered money and even robbed a bakery. She kind of created like the little rascals version of the Sopranos. Just kidding. <laughs> she didn't rebel in the slightest. She was a straight A student and an accomplished athlete. Right after high school, actually, I had a like a moment that I think shook some things loose. Coming up after the break, the experience that helped Kate rethink the way she was living. I had the opportunity to spend a month in Wyoming. I went on a uh, Knowles course, National Outdoor Leadership School. And, you know, I definitely had kind of a mountaintop moment because I felt totally free out there. I didn't know any of the people. They didn't know me. I had never been there before. I was in love with the place. So I just had that like lift of being in love. And um, I think I, I know I was able in that moment, in that place to really feel like, okay, I can be the me I am now, not who I have thought I had to be this whole life. And then, you know, it takes a while for yourself to catch up with that. But I definitely saw, interestingly, because it wasn't like that was a party or, a, you know, I was like working hard out there, but right. I definitely felt like free to kind of see myself and understand myself in the world differently in that moment. And so I think that having that experience and then going to college was really good for me because I did feel like I was able to just break free and define myself. And so I think in that, that was part of the process of me realizing that I can continue to be a um, dedicated student, but it, that doesn't mean that I'm not also other things and that I can give myself the space to be those other things. And it was like building that muscle of like me choosing what I wanted and not just what what am I expected to do here? And, you know, it came to college and I was kind of making, you know, that shift in terms of like having these moments of kind of breaking free a little bit. I, um, you know, I did feel like I had this inner ability to say, okay, so what do I mean by this? 
Kate attended Princeton. She played lacrosse there, but in her junior year, she realized that lacrosse just wasn't fun anymore. So she quit the team. And Kate says that this was the first decision in her life that she owned. That decision led Kate to explore other new ways to define herself. Her love for the outdoors took her out west after graduation. She got an internship at a newspaper based on the western slope of Colorado. And that's when Kate saw that acting with kindness could be a tool. On a weekend while I was there, my, my then boyfriend, now husband, came out and visited and we went for a long bike ride um, just like around that area. And I actually, just like as an aside, should note that like this was not like a Lycra nice bike bike ride. I, I think we borrowed like really clunky bikes and um, yes. still went for a really long <laughs> bike ride, but just it was like... <laughs> You know, our style, and I actually have a have an old photo. Like, we were definitely in, like, hiking shorts and maybe yes. hiking boots. And, you know, so that, just to complete the picture, but when I say going for a long bike ride, it was it was not what may, yeah. may come to mind for some people. Um, but we stopped and had just, like, a, a picnic, just some, some lunch along the way at a little field. We had brought our... And I remember we were having this conversation because uh, we were both reading a lot of like Western history and we were both very into environmental history and environmental stuff at that point. And we had this really great conversation about like what causes people to change? Like, can you force people to change? And we were sort of thinking about it in the context of, you know, a lot of momentum towards bad decision making for the environment had been going on for, you know, at least a generation, if not more. And like what you know, we are at the front end of our careers and kind of our, our, our adult lives and how could we be part of creating change? So we were thinking at a very fundamental level, like what makes people change? And, you know, that was a really important moment for me around this thinking about kindness, because I, I at that time and still like, and, you know, I've continued to kind of refine this thinking, but I really felt like pushing people makes them resist. They don't, like, I don't see that as a good way to change. And I, you know, was using myself as like a data point of one, but like if someone, you know, if someone pushes me to do something, it makes me more resistant rather than more willing. Yeah, totally. And, um, yeah. and I don't always, that's not always a good thing about me, but it, I do know that about myself. Um, whereas if I feel like someone is understanding and kind of trying to connect to where I am, but also bring me new information about where I could potentially go, I'm way more open to change. And I have seen that in other people as well. And so we had this really interesting conversation. And I think in many ways, that was sort of where some of the real seeds for this thinking about kindness began to get clearer in my head, because mm -hmm. I really do feel like a lot of it is is both from my own personal interactions, like understanding how I want to be in the world and be in, in good relationships with people, but not so much to please them, but rather because it's a way that I can be um, kind of true to my self, but also like honor them, but also have the potential to have a vision for a different future that we could potentially go toward it together, but not because it's what I say and I'm forcing them to do something, but because it's, you know, I'm, I'm understanding where they are and trying to meet them there. And, and, you know, and as the more I thought about that, the more this concept of like framing it in the context of kindness came, came to mind. Can you define kind? So my definition of kind is that it's acting wholeheartedly in the best interest of others or of another person with 
every part of you being very thoughtful about what's in the best interest of that other person and how, how and what is the action that I can do that serves that interest. How do we be kind? That is the question, isn't it? Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I think it takes a combination of looking inside yourself and looking outside yourself. And in terms of like, you have to be able to take your own ego out of it. Right. I can't think of a situation where it's not going to be better to bring your best self and your kind, your, your most like smiling self to most interactions. Um, and then in other cases, you're going to have to think through like, all right, like smiling my way through this is not what this is about. This is not about being nice. It's about being firm. And so then, you know, you kind of go, you know, in each, each more complicated situation, you have to go a little deeper and be a little more reflective. And I think honesty, like with self and with what you're seeing in the world is a really, really important part of it. Because if you're not being honest, then you're not going to see yourself and your own sort of potential ego needs clearly. And you're not going to see other people clearly. So looking inward, looking outward being honest and being situational, you know, there's, and, and then just, you know, knowing that it's a work in progress every day. Kate took her thoughts on kindness and began trying to apply them to her personal relationships. But what exactly does that look like? I'll use an example of my husband um, because, you know, that's one of the core relationships in my life. And, um, you know, maybe is a, you know, good way to to frame it, so, you know, we've been married for 26 years and we met in college and, you know, he was my, you know, really good friend for a while and then, you know, we became more than friends and then we, you know, ended up getting married and, you know, we've had a, a you know, great run and I'm, I'm really, you know, <laughs> so happy that yeah. I get to be married to this guy and that, you know, I get to spend time with him, which isn't to say that it's always been easy, but he's, right. he's absolutely my favorite person to spend time with. And, you know, we've definitely had to work at it. And I've, and I've realized that for me, working at it has been figuring out when to, when is it kind to, not settle and mm-hmm. when is it kind to like not say anything and like what where's the balance and i would say you know in the last few years it's been a really like we've i think both of us and you know he would probably use different terms but for me i've felt like using my definition of kindness like acting in the best interest of him and of our relationship um has meant that i've there have been times when i've had to have like just, you know, say some hard things. And like one example is he and I have very different political views. Um, he is, he's um, not, he didn't vote for Trump. I want to be clear in this you know, context that it wasn't, <laughs> yeah. wasn't that, but that he yeah. has very, uh, he's a decentralist and believes in uh, secession at the state level. And, you know, and I don't like, I'm fine with that at one level. And he's been very public about that in some settings. And I, and it's created some awkward situations for me sometimes. And, Mm -hmm. and, and we like fundamentally disagree. And, um, there definitely have been times when I felt like I could just like settle, I could just stop like 
articulating this when things flare up and then I've just felt like nope I have to be honest and transparent here and like mm -hmm. it's gonna it's gonna make create some greater discomfort for us but it's ultimately gonna make us stronger and give us a stronger foundation and and so that's you know at one level that's like marriage 101 but another level for me like thinking about it in terms of kindness which is how I do think about it um, is you know is definitely really you know an important piece of it. Well, in 2016, you took your daughter Annika on a hike through Glacier National Park. Were there any important be kind, not good mother-daughter talks that happened there? I've been kind of working through a lot of this thinking while I've been raising her. And so, you know, we have had a lot of those conversations along the way in like small ways, which is how I feel like a lot of parenting happens is like, oh my gosh, I've got like five seconds right now to respond to this one thing and I could get some important information across. And so I feel like we'd had a lot of <laughs> those <laughs> conversations along the way. Yeah. Last year, um, almost exactly a year ago, we went to Patagonia. Um, my daughter especially was, you know, kind of, you know, wanted to be very much independent. And so it was, it was an interesting experience. And this was, you know, I definitely thought about it in terms of kindness, like, you know, I'm very comfortable on trips like that, you know, great opportunity to make a lot of friends. But mm -hmm. I realized, like, she needs to, like, have some space to connect in her ways. So I kind of hung back more on that trip and my son and I bonded and, you know, so I, I was not suffering. But I definitely, you know, realized that, like, kindness to my daughter and her journey for growing up was to just be like, you go, like, take this space, you, you know, you, be, you know more than I, you know, there are many situations where, um, you know, I've backpacked before, but it was important that she, um, you know, kind of be the expert and I was happy to have her be the expert and like, you know, just fade back. So I don't know if that exactly answers the question, but I would say on both of those trips, I just saw that she has way more sort of courage than I did at that age. And that makes me really, really happy. Using kindness as a tool for navigating life goes far beyond Kate's personal life. It also shows up on the job. Kate has been the CEO of 1% for the Planet since 2015. It's a global organization that helps businesses donate 1% of their annual sales to environmental nonprofits like the Access Fund. And since its inception in 2002, 1% has helped its 1,200 members give more than 175 million bucks to the environment. That is way, way awesome. But it also made me really curious about her belief. I'm wondering if you think that this concept translates to organizations, you know, because you run 1% for the planet. And I think that that is an organization that a lot of people would define or, or would say, well, that's that's a good organization. You know, is that a misnomer? Is 1% actually kind? I think so. And I definitely, like, it totally informs how I think about being a leader, both in terms of, like, with my staff, but also globally. And it brings in, like, my thinking about change. You know, and again, if the, like, if my definition of kind is like, what's in the best interest of those around me of, you know, whether it's a group of people, whether it's a, um, a planet, <laughs> or whether it's one person, acting with kindness is figuring out how to act in such a way that things are better, not and acting. And if it was good, it would just be more, um, 
acting in such a way that people feel good, that it feels pleasing to people. And I think the difference is that kindness is stronger and a little scarier. And that's where the bravery comes in because to take a stand, to provide difficult feedback to a staff member, to stand up to an issue as an organization, to kind of hold the line on a strategic area with a board. Like for me, I'm at my best when I think of all those things in terms of kindness, not in terms of um, winning or being stronger or ego or something like that. It's really about like, for me, it's like the best lever for making change happen because kindness by definition, by my definition, you're going to end up in relationship with whomever it is you're sort of interacting with because you have to sort of understand what's in their best interest and be really honest about that because sometimes what's in their best interest may not be in yours. So then what are you going to mm. do and how are you right. going to act? So I definitely feel like if, and I I don't always get it right for sure, but if, if I can, if my leadership of the organization and if the organization as a whole can be informed by kindness as defined by doing what is in the best interest of the person, the people, the planet, mm -hmm. then we're like hitting it out of the park. You know, there's this famous and often misquoted and misattributed quote from the historian Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. Well-behaved women seldom make history. What does that mean to you? I think that when you behave, you maintain what is because you're fitting into rules that are already there. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, there's a time and a place for that. But really, if you want to change the world and if you want to make the world a better place, if you want to real ultimately do anything of value, you have to be willing to not behave. And you brought up that during your childhood, your brothers were the wild ones and that, that you were the good one. Do you believe that this is something that gets set on young girls and women's shoulders in our society? You know, it's a good question because I do find now that I'm in a different place because of all of what I've thought about. And yet uh -huh. there's an expectation that I'm, uh, you know, still a rule follower in certain ways because I don't necessarily, you know, I think there are cultural, societal signals that we send out about like who's rebellious and who's not either based on what you wear or wh where you hang out mm -hmm. or whatever. And um, I don't necessarily send out all those signals, but I feel like I'm, you know, I have cultivated some courage around how to, you know, act based on my convictions. And, and I do feel like sometimes there, you know, there are expectations around goodness placed on girls. Why is it so important to be kind rather than good? If I continued to focus on being good in the sense of pleasing others and kind of behaving, I would be less fulfilled because I think I would like, it would kind of be a constraint. I would, I would not feel 
like it could just be unbridled fun to go out and do listen to music and do tequila shots with my friends. <laughs> I would not feel, which is good. Like there's value in that. Good in the other sense of the word. I would not feel like I could effectively lead an organization mm -hmm. because I would essentially in, not internally be able to navigate the fact that I'm actually not going to please everyone all the time as a matter of fact. Like there's no way that I will do that. And to be a good leader, I'm going to have to make some hard decisions that might actively displease some people. But if it's in the best interest of what we need to do, then it's what I need to do. So I think I would be like personally constrained. I think I would be professionally constrained. And then in terms of just like the sum total of both of those, if I were to just stay in the sort of good space, I think I would be just constrained in my ability to create change in the world um, because I, you know, would be essentially adhering to rules that already existed in a world where we know that some things need to change. This sounds really hard, right? I know. I get it. I think so, too. But remember, Kate never said that she believed kindness was easy. It takes guts. Bravery is when you step outside of what is just normal and comfortable for you to do and do something that requires you to um, perhaps be a little uncomfortable, perhaps to feel a little bit of fear before you do it, but that you step forward and do it anyway. For me, thinking about like, all right, if I want to bring my full power to bear to, you know, for the planet, then in some way I'm going to have to be part of creating conditions for change. And and so for me, the, the most effective way that I believe I can do that is by deploying kindness, as it were, to, you know, invite people into the opportunity to change and then also to have my own actions shaped by that as well. listening to Safety Third. Our guest today was Kate Williams. And to learn more about what she's doing, go ahead and check out 1%fortheplanet.org. If you like today's show, please spread the word to your group of humans. Remember that time that you were all alone and you had so much fun? Of course you don't. You were with your crew. So tell your posse about Safety Third and have a hoot all together. You can find us on Instagram at safety third underscore podcast and on the old interwebs at safetythirdpodcast.com. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nicano. Alex Park edited this episode. Additional production help from Jake Churcher. Music by my brother, that's right, my big but smaller older brother, Brendan Bah Humbug O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitz Cahal is our creative director. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Okie dokie, my friends. Until next time, keep it tight, keep it loose. And remember, safety third.